0: the role of the artist is, is even in those those difficult moments to make something uh, beautiful enough that you have to look at it. So there's a bit of a, a conflict because these things may not be beautiful to look at. They may be in fact very sad or they may have...
1: Hello and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm your host, Nishant Jain. This is a show where I speak with artists who draw or paint their worlds from observation. My guests include watercolorists, line artists, educators, travelers, architects, designers, all kinds of people. What unites them is a love for the urban environment and human activity. Their art brings out beauty in the ordinary things of life places, and people that we are surrounded by, but rarely acknowledge or appreciate. On this show, I speak with them about the why of their art as well as the how, trying to uncover not just where they're coming from, but what they see, the ways that they interpret their vision, and where they want to go with their finished works. In today's episode, I speak with George Butler, a British artist who travels to war zones, conflict areas and refugee camps all over the world, making ink and watercolour drawings of the people and their lives. His paintings capture humanity confronting some of its greatest traumas, circumstances that are unchanged over the centuries, despite our armchair notions of love or peace or global human rights. In his work, we see lives displaced by war, famine and political instability people affected directly and indirectly by geopolitical games. We discuss anecdotes from George's new book where he presents stories of human migration compiled from a decade of making art in such places as Syria, Afghanistan, Tajikistan, Kenya, Iraq, Myanmar, and Eastern Europe. This book, Drawn Across Borders, shares the lives of 12 people, living in circumstances that might seem unimaginable or cruel to many of us. How do they find home again? How do they settle in the foreign places they go, sometimes temporarily, often under oppressive conditions, usually without basic rights or freedom? Migration is a basic human practice. As George points out, it is a fundamental reality of human existence, and it has been this way for hundreds of thousands of years. In fact, it is how we trace the paths of human history itself. The people in this book are often powerless before the mighty waves that wreck their lives and destroy their worlds, but also enormously resilient to keep standing, to keep finding ways to live, things to smile about, moments to laugh and to share, finding hope even in their great tragedies. Buy the book from the link in the show notes. There you will also find a link to George's website and his Instagram page. In this conversation, I ask him how he came to be an illustrator and how he came to put himself in such dire places. Can we find art in such an environment? Is there a special use of such traditional art in a world that is already saturated by multiple forms of media? What chance does an illustration stand? For example, What does it matter that one artist sat down to watch a queue of people trying to enter the Serbian border, and that one little girl spotted him drawing and smiled and waved? Today's episode is brought to you by Robert, Sriti, Malvinder, Becky, Dinah, Barbara, Patty, Irina, Meg, Claire, Santosh, Mark, Fisto, and Michelle. Thank you for buying me coffee. And for your encouraging words that keep this show going, I hope you will enjoy this episode too. If you enjoy this show, and if a particular episode inspires you in any way, if you find that this episode moves you, you can now support my work directly. Visit the link in the show notes to buy me a coffee. And also consider it an opportunity to start a conversation. Tell me what you liked, what worked for you, and how it affected your ideas about art. I would love to hear from you. Okay, with that out of the way, let's begin today's episode. Hello, George, and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. It is my great honor to speak with you today, and thank you for giving me your time.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: George, uh, in your latest book, Drawn Across Borders, which I was lucky to receive an e-copy of, you cover migration stories from around the world, migration prompted by all kinds of different reasons. And what really amazes me about this book is not just the stories that you mention, but the way that you represent them. You have some amount of words, you have some personal uh, conversations with them that you relate, but also you have these illustrations that you talk about, that you share. So I want to ask you, how did, how did this idea strike you of talking about migration? How did the idea of human migration occur to you as a subject? And then how did you go about bringing together these stories, which span your decade long career as, uh, as a sketcher in conflict
0: zones? Small question to start with. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um I think migration. I mean, it just so happened that the places that I had been and was drawing um, and had been drawing places like Iraq and Syria, from a, from a sort of reportage point of view, from the places that I thought were interesting and that I thought were underrepresented in the press, front page news, certainly, um, it just so happened that in the background of all of these uh, wars or difficult situations, um, people were moving. So... Um I'm thinking about when I was walking into Syria, uh people were coming the other way. And when I was uh documenting the the uh frontline forces in Mosul again there were other, there were others moving from that part of the world. So uh it wasn't by accident, but it it soon became the most human uh thing that I could concentrate on. And um i think drawing lens lens it lends itself to that i think there is an angle there that, a, a bit like a podcast that allows you some allows you time to sit and observe and spend time with people
1: mm-hmm. uh you mentioned in uh, just now you mentioned the individual stories and in the introduction to your book you also mentioned the importance of individual stories that sometimes in this increasingly interconnected world we run the risk of having a shallower understanding of the people can you elaborate on this with respect to how you know we've been popularly told that to really understand a situation you need to zoom out you need to be dispassionate you can't be bogged down by individual stories and the emotions associated with them so how, how do you how do you respond to that kind of thought
0: i think there's a balance between the two i think uh, we're often encouraged to you know, take a world view and look at the numbers and 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 we are becoming increasingly good at that because of the data that exists and the information that is available at our fingertips. But actually, I don't know whether we're comprehending those situations better. I don't know if we're making better decisions um, at any level, politically or socially or downwards, because we we have the, that information. Uh, uh, and so I suppose what I mean by that without sort of knowing more than, than the next person is that I think we benefit from understanding those individual stories. And if we can hold those, that information alongside the other bits that we know, then that is a fairer representation of, of the world that we live in. And I suppose the shallow understanding just comes from this very distant relationship we have with our phones and then with the people on the other end of our phones, perhaps it's an intimate relationship with our phones, but it's certainly a distant one. And I think it's sort of quantity over quality. And so I suppose this, this book is, and the old fashioned analog version of drawing it, um, as you and I know is um, a call to slow down as much as anything else. And they could have been 12 stories about 12 other people. very easily. And the next book may be about 12 different people in a a different (laughs) setting. So I think that's the sort of common denominator.
1: All right. Uh, Let's let's look at how you came to be doing this analog and traditional form of illustration in this new world that we're in, which is so inundated with all kinds of media. Can you tell me about uh, your early inspirations in not only for illustration, but also for war-related imagery. Uh, did it come out of, like, uh, comic books or uh, n- movies that you saw? Did it come from the way you s- maybe you saw coverage on cable news that inspired you? But what, what how did it begin and how did it end with you in a war zone with
0: paper and pen and a pot of ink in your hand? That's a very a good question. I don't know if I have the answer to it, but I'll try. Um, I mean, early inspirations were um a sort of obsessive desire a sort of a, compet- a competitive desire with myself to copy things as i saw them from magazines and uh and and where and wherever else and then um what else was it i mean pe- artists most of whom have um are now dead but people like ronald searle felix topolsky um Gerald Scarf, he's not he's not dead actually, he's alive. Uh, um all drew with with a view to telling stories from for the news. And it was um there was a there's obviously a proven formula for, for that happening over time, and lots of artists did that before before the invention of uh photography. So that I think is an inspiration. Um I should and I suppose I mean, it isn't only it isn't only war that I focus on, but it is that because of the the news industry that we have that is what that's what gets the most attention so um, i've drawn in i've drawn in a pl- uh, plastic surgeons theaters in a leprosy clinic um, in nepal uh, in the courtrooms on oil rigs all places that are sort of on the fringes of of our newspapers and and interest that you wouldn't otherwise be allowed so it's sort of it's an it's an access thing as well and sometimes sometimes it's i use it as a tool to see things that i wouldn't otherwise see and sometimes it's used as a tool to answer a brief mm.
1: so how how did you get into this this idea that using illustration you would you would talk about these stories these things that are at the fringe how uh, what about how about uh how did your association with illustration as an act of you know giving information to people how did that come about were, were you educated and did you study in the subject was it something you pursued um,
0: I studied uh yeah I studied an illustration degree at Kingston University and um but it wasn't I suppose it wasn't really till the last year that there, there was a it was a the reportage in a sense was a thing it wasn't a part of our course necessarily but I was aware of it because I I drew in pen and ink almost uh, exclusively, and and therefore I was led, you know, the my inspiration were was from those who had done that before. Um, but I remember one that I guess there was a there was a sort of moment where in my last year of university, I had been introduced to this idea of reportage, and I got the opportunity to go to Afghanistan. Um, as a guest of the british army and so i spent two weeks um with these young uh girls and guys representing the british army in the in the various bases in that part of the world and um i was 21 or 22 and obviously i wanted to go to the front and be a hero uh or could sort of you know do that do that thing that all the great war Artists and photographers of, of, that I knew about had done, but but sort of quite rightly I wasn't allowed because there was no there was no real reason for doing that, and so I was in I went on a few patrols, but I was very much left in in places like Camp, Camp Bastion and in um, Kandahar and drawing people waiting to go to war, and at the time that seemed frustrating, but actually of course that is. That became a much more common experience of war than than perhaps yeah. the, the the things we see on our front pages so i i learned in a way a valuable lesson that drawing does have a role uh and it may not be alongside the don McCullens and the CBS News's and uh, uh, you know on the front line but it but it is but it or it may not compete there but it but there is a important storytelling element to to be found, and it's just how you deploy yourself to use an army term.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that, that role is quite intriguing to me. Uh, I recently read uh, William Dalrymple's Return of a King, and in that he talks about the first few war illustrators and painters who went along with the army into into that part of the world, and it was so interesting to me how that became an instantaneous well for the times an instantaneous way of communicating what war looks like and then that generated so much interest in the public and therefore generated so much interest in news uh, news publications who were interested in showing those images to the public but now you know over time now it's more than a century and a half since then we've got live coverage of war zones we've got tweets we've got pictures we've got videos so, what what is the role that traditional illustration can still offer when we've got so much media of so many different kinds? We're almost saturated by images of war at this point. So, what what does what does traditional illustration offer in the midst of all of this?
0: Well, I think uh, I mean, uh, it, great. The more saturation, the better, as far as I'm concerned, because it makes, in a way, it makes our role as someone with a pencil and a piece of paper easier, because. Uh, Every time you turn the page or you pick up your phone you have a you have a piece of rolling news footage and uh, there's only so much you can take in so uh, the role of the illustrator now is apart from it being an incredibly powerful way of communicating ideas with words and pictures which we know from from children's books all the way up um apart from that it's to highlight you know it's to punctuate these these pieces of news with a moment where. We can slow down, and I think there's a proportional amount of time spent looking at, at drawings. Is that I think you spend more time looking at a drawing than you do than you do at a photograph. I think so. I you know that may just be because it's it's different, or it may be because it's good. But um, either way, I think the role of the of an artist or an illustrator is to to pick something that they find interesting to highlight it and to show it to as many people as they can. And um, that's not to say that it's better than those brilliant photographers that I've worked alongside, or those brilliant writers that we, we, we know about, um, but it is, to, but it is to say that it is a different version. And I think in a world as busy and as full as of different people as we are, then the more, the more ways of communicating with each other then the better.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I want to pick that point that you said about how an illustration sometimes can lead to somebody observing it for a longer time than they would a photograph. Mm. And thinking about it purely in informational terms, any photograph of a moment captures and communicates more data, more information than the illustration does. But still, and I agree with you, the illustration invites people to, like you said, to slow down and to spend more time with that image. Why, why do you think that is? How how does that work?
0: I think there is a element of, uh, there's still an element of illusion there. It's still a great magic trick that that you wonder how it's done. And so the idea of the hand handmade lines of dragging your eye across the page is still, there is still a fascination with, with how that might be done. I mean, it's not equal to our fascination with uh, with as many photographs as possible, but it, but there is still a kind of a, a, an interest there. And I, so I think you often you don't always wonder who the photographer was, but you often you often wonder who the artist was, where were they were standing, how were they treated, was it possible to make that image, did they do it from life at all? You know, you're trying in a way to see fault in it as well, which uh, which I think means. You know, lots of people stand in front of a piece of piece, a picture and say, I could have done that. Or they're amazed and say, I couldn't have done that. And so you get that reaction, which buys you time as well.
1: Yeah. And somehow just buying that time, that, that seems to be all that you can that, that you can hope for, right? Like we've got Instagram and everybody's scrolling. We've got Twitter and everybody's scrolling. And even if you say the most important thing, it feels like maybe you can get three seconds of somebody's time. But if you can, and I love how you called it a magic trick in a way, because that's exactly what it is. In a way, if you can, whatever you can do to trick people into spending more than three seconds, give it 10 seconds of your time. Suddenly you have them thinking a second time, thinking about the image a third time. And that's where these, like these surface level thoughts we have, you know, and you said, you mentioned saturation and I'm thinking about how, what does that do? When we're saturated by stories and images of war, they don't move us anymore. We, our capacity for reacting to them is gone because it's saturated. That's, that's where the illustration, by allowing you to think about how was it made, what is it saying, what does it not say, what does it show, and what does it not show, it simply buys you more time. And just that—that's all we can like. As I feel like, as somebody trying to communicate their art that's just all it is right if you can get some time from the person what more could you ask for
0: well yeah i think time is a great i think giving your time to people is is a is a is a great gift isn't it and uh, and i suppose it works both it works both ways in this sort of creation and the showing of an illustration or or, or a drawing at one end you are giving your time and your you're willing to spend time and listen and sit down probably more than the last person because the last person was a photographer or an or a, a charity worker or somebody you know someone busy with a job to do and and so sitting down and taking an interest is is exactly that giving time giving time to the to the story or the the person that you're with and i think that that can open open can access areas that you wouldn't always always have and so um so you're giving it at one end and then you're hoping at the other when you're showing it to people that you get that in return and i suppose the point of of a book that we all of a book as opposed to a um instagram feed is that you can pick it up and touch it and turn the pages and and that's the same with an exhibition you you want interaction we haven't been allowed that uh, for the last 12 months. Um, so I think we are missing that a bit at the moment. Um, and uh, yeah, so uh, you're right. Whatever whatever the engagement is, it's just gotta be a bit more than the, than the last time.
1: And another thing you mentioned was about how whenever you make an illustration, there's some amount of your own personality on the page. What you chose to show, what you excluded, what you focused on and what was on the periphery of your image because you're seeing you're seeing this this uh, complex reality in front of you and then you're breaking it down you're trying to communicate something out of it and there's this impersonality to a photograph again maybe it has to do with how many photographs we've seen and how the photographs are so easy for us to access but an illustration implies that somebody sat there and spent time doing that thing and Th- that's that's maybe what people are are curious about, and maybe putting themselves in those shoes, or just trying to see how did you then process it because you gave that moment your time.
0: Yeah, uh, I think I think that's right. It, uh, at Time, and then the other thing that I think that I have found is that in comparison to some of the the more traumatic things we see on our televisions or or, or Um, the the role of the the news is really to report it as they found it or to make it um, dare I say in some cases uh, sensational enough that we switch on or that we are horrified and that's you know that's a different rush that we're looking for the role of the artist is, is even in those those difficult moments to make something uh, beautiful enough that you have to look at it. So there's a bit of a contrast there. There's a bit of a, a conflict because these things may not be beautiful to look at. They may be, in fact, very sad or they may have things, that, uh, ideas attached to them that, that make us upset, but they still have to look good. And the better they look and the... The more technical or the more brilliant you can be with your line or your color, then the the more you you the more time you get from people. And um, I think there is uh, so that's an important thing to play on, I suppose. The idea that something that isn't attractive has to be good looking enough to get, capture people's attention.
1: Yeah, and that that's such an important aspect of your work which almost in a, in a way it compels you to explore the concept of what is quote unquote art more deeply because you're not painting things that are traditionally beautiful. You're not painting things that would make people smile to look upon. You're 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 depicting scenes of trauma, of conflict, and then you're finding something like it's it's a it's a broader definition of beauty than simply pretty things. Mm.
0: Yeah, I, I, the same rules apply if you're, I guess, if you're drawing in a market in, in, uh, in Marrakesh as you are, if you, you know, in, a, in, a, in, um, anything else down and down a gold mine or, you know, there is a, I think the interest has to come from, from the person drawing and, and, uh, and that sort of intensity comes from them. And then, then, um. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I like they are the same. Set, it's the same sets of, sort of visual rules, pen and ink, and and economy of line, and leaving space, and that it would apply to any image. But I suppose the 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 part of the work that interests me in equal proportion um, is this is this is the story. And very often the process for that is that I'll sit down in a in a place like uh i don't know tajikistan uh to take an example from the book and um i'll be drawing something people queuing for for work or whatever the the scene was in, in Dushanbe, and then some suddenly somebody's coming to talk to you and the story isn't is no longer about the scene of people queuing for work it's about the individual that i was talking to and so then the drawings morph into a a set of images that try and do justice to that person's story and, and that is when I feel the kind of most inspired And you know, nothing there isn't any there's this great pressure that that is then put upon you because actually the person is engaged and you're you know they're going to see the the drawings and they may even be looking at a drawing that's just been made of them and so there is a real pressure to perform to make sure it looks like them to make sure that their street is represented of their street and that I think is probably one of the reasons why I keep doing it because I produce the, my best drawings under under pressure.
1: Hmm. And uh, there's such a such a strong element of faith there that you have to show up at the location. And often you will not know what you know what kind of magic you're going to find here. What's going to really spark and make that drawing come alive? You simply have to be there, and you have to be open to these experiences.
0: Yeah and you also have to be doing I mean, it, it, it isn't it isn't always fluke i think the, the the guys that and girls that take the best photographs are usually the ones that have um wandered round and round and round and round, and round for days on end um that's certainly a very big part of my work wandering up and down streets until you catch that moment that you think is representative of what you saw um and in the in the book i think that i try and i guess that the book is uh, i think all books are a bit unfair because you kind of i mean so this is a 48 pages but also like eight years of work so they come across as uh they, they come across as sort of great moments but i was thinking of one where i spent days and days uh in west mosul a year after it had been liberated from from isis and we knew i knew that all, that all over the city with people were very slowly moving back in as the services came they were they were coming back to their homes to to see whether they'd been destroyed and um everyone was talking about it happening but we didn't i didn't find it for for days until this one moment where we're standing on the street and this truck pulls up and uh this father and his three sons get out and there's some road works going on they just start unloading their whole house back into their from the truck into their house a year after they'd moved out and it was this great sort of excitement because they hadn't their house was still standing um and this was their first time back now it's impossible it would have been impossible to try and plan that but um there's only one bridge from east to west Mosul open at the time and it was fluke in a way but it was also just that we were standing there for, for so long that eventually something must have happened.
1: Yeah, you you increase the chances of that, you know, of of good luck. Let's if we could call it luck, you increase yeah. the odds of luck striking in your favor by simply showing up every time.
0: Yeah, but draw, but yeah, I mean, it, 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 drawing allows that, doesn't it? Because you can sit down.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's by default, it, it requires you to be that slowed down kind of person that you give everything your deep attention and a lot of your time. It, it, we keep coming back to this and I keep thinking about it this way, even when I go out to sketch that just the act of giving time is what is the most valuable thing we give, like more than the skill or more than, you know, how well you draw a face or, you know, how good you are with paints. It's just about the fact that you give it so much time and that's what brings about everything else
0: mm. yeah i think so i think th- i think at the very least these at the the very, yeah at the very least these drawings are a record aren't they of of a moment by by one person and um they aren't a snapshot like a a camera or but they are uh a, a, sort of a comp- composite image over an hour or two hours and and i think that well, I think that's equally important. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, Tajikistan and that, that story over there was so interesting to me because we think about migration and a lot of people have different ideas of why somebody would migrate and very little understanding of the constraints that make it necessary for them to migrate. And You've been able to uncover these different different constraints and different compulsions that people have felt to go somewhere. But also, you've uncovered this compulsion that people seem to have. And you just mentioned that in your, sto- in your uh, telling of the story in West Mosul of somebody coming back to their home and how strong that pull is that even when you know that you might be seeing destruction, you might be seeing the bombed out remains of what used to be your home. Still, people want to come back, and still they want to put something back where it back where they belong.
0: Yeah, I think well, that has been my experience of always of it that uh, that this is a, that these decisions are never they're never the first choice to to leave home for whatever reason, and that even when I've met them, whoever they are a long way away from their home that, that usually their idea of home is where they've where they've come from not in the place that they're in and and you're right that draw that draw except in the cases of um those whose circumstances are sort kind of beyond comprehension and incredibly traumatic beyond anything um i think that those are uh, all those sort of case studies are that most people want to go home if they were if they could do so safely with their families then then that of course would be their first choice and um but the the right the right to move for a better future must be must be something that we would like to promote whether that's possible or not uh
1: i'm i'm thinking about uh, you you kind of partly answered a question that I had for you, and that was. But maybe we should go into it more I'd fully want to because partly I partly
0: answer all your questions, Nishant, uh-huh. but, none, but never fully. <laughs> I'm,
1: I'm going to try to circle around the question and ask it from another angle, and then hopefully these parts will build into a nice whole. That's, that's what my, that's what my goal is with this one, this next one. Okay, uh, <laughs> I wanted to ask how, how you set out to find these stories. So you, you answered it partly, of course, in just being there, in just wandering around and having the faith that you're going to see something and something is going to come at you. But even just the larger I- idea of where you want to be, which part of the world you want to be at one, at a given time, mm. and then how, when you're there, what is it that you're going to try to look for this morning when you
0: wake up well I think there are two so well I'll, I'll partly answer again there are two halves one is that sometimes I think that a part of the world sounds interesting and that drawing will lend itself to it so uh, in the case of of the Syria crisis in 2012 I went thinking I'll draw that's a great exodus of people that we were all expecting to pile across the borders into turkey uh unlike all sort of expectations when you get there it's different and um but i was then there and i wanted to prove as a stubborn young man that drawing was a thing for the news and so i went into syria and drew the people i met and that was with the free syrian army and it was for a couple of days and uh the stories were powerful enough that i didn't need to go any further than than i did and so that was one way around and then they were picked up by newspapers and the bbc and uh so very much sort of driven by me but ending up in the news and then the other is is that they that i'm often commissioned to do to do work based on what i've done before so i think for example i went to um Angola last year, was it last year or the year before? We've lost a year. It's very difficult to know. uh With a demining, uh, a landmine clearance uh organization, and uh, you know, I got, I given a very loose brief, but there was a there was a story to tell, and that was about young men and women locally employed who were clearing the landmines left by the Russians and the Americans over the last thirty years. Um, But I still think that I'm looking for the same thing. And that is a, it's still, it's still a sort of context. So where they are, what they're doing, landscapes to get that in. And then, then it's personal. And then it's the kind of moments that you're, when nobody's looking and you've been forgotten as an artist that I think, you know, uh, washing plates and dishes after a long day, digging up landmines or, uh, I remember one scene, these, a team of female D miners sitting round a television in a tent, um, doing each other's hair and watching, uh, terrible. Soap, so uh soaps on the TV. And, um, that I think that's probably the role, my role in it. That's what I'm looking for anyway. Yeah.
1: And, uh. You mentioned drawing for the news and the drive to do that as a young person to try to prove that illustrations have a place in the news. And that strikes me as this moment of both conflict and collaboration where uh, there is something you want to communicate and then you might wonder about how it is best communicated and uh, what, what does your drawing need to show in order for it to be an effective communication of what you're trying to say. But also the things that you want to draw do do you find uh, do you find conflict between these two things do you find a like a resonance between them do they agree with each other and how, how do you then choose what what kind of how how you compose say a piece
0: um good question i'm trying to think of an example to answer it um very often i think the story that i know that would get into a newspaper isn't an option for me to draw because it's it happened usually it happened last week uh and so yeah i should say there are as many cases of of, of my of drawings not getting published as there are being published I, i've spent 10 days in armenia before christmas and it was the end of the it was an incredibly interesting time the russians had broke a cease fire there was huge Armenian uh anger back towards their government because they'd given away um eight thousand kilometres of of a land that they um had lived on and had uh voted to be part of. And so from a sort of political, geopolitical point of view, there was human story and there was great sadness and and uh A fascinating time mothers were looking for their sons in morgues and um uh people were burning down their homes and and leaving them so that the you know the spoils of war weren't handed over to the to the azerbaijan forces and yet all that was incredibly difficult to draw because uh it happened three days ago or we didn't know where it was going to happen or uh you get there the house is burnt down but it's there's no one there's no one left anymore and so that is, you've sort of got to tr- try and represent that in a different way. And I'm not sure if I did that very well. We drew, we drew, we drew people mourning in the monasteries and young men waiting in, I say we, I drew young men waiting in trenches um, on the off chance that the war con- would continue. And so those are powerful images in my mind. And they have this significantly kind of emotional, but they haven't made it into a newspaper um, and it's not to say they will not cause that, that story is the same this week as it was four months ago. And um, there isn't any resolution for the, for the people that I met. Um, but there is a, you're right. There isn't those two don't run side by side uh but also the other thing that doesn't run run side by side which i think should be reassuring to to other people drawing is that sometimes like the the thing that you know you're very often limited by your ability aren't you like you may want to draw a beautiful six-year-old girl in the in the middle of a in the middle in the dark but that's famously difficult thing to do so um you're limited by you sort of have to follow the story even if it's not your favorite thing to draw and that i think is it works both ways it's quite a nice boundary to have if the story is a queue full of people and that they're busy and they're all facing the other way then that may be difficult to draw but you've still got to do it i think um we can't in my i guess my role doesn't allow uh me just to draw whatever the most beautiful i'd love to be drawing mosques covered in pigeons uh, you know, this is you know, like, you just can't draw them badly. Um, busy market scenes with friendly faces and bright colors. But that isn't, that wasn't always possible.
1: Yeah. And these constraints, um, you mentioned the constraint of just ability, for example, but there's also the constraint of the tools you have at hand. There's the constraint of the amount of time you have at that location and the uh, amount of time that you have to cover something, and being in a foreign landscape means, of course, being out of your comfort zone. So there is there is that constraint also acting on you. Have you have you found that, like, sometimes I think about the kind of constraints, just simply thinking about constraints of tools. So I go out to draw and I carry a fountain pen with me and I don't carry other things with me. And to a lot of people I speak to about my art, it strikes to them as a constraint upon me that I'm not able to represent colors, I'm not able to represent you know, very big things very quickly because I can only do line work now. And there is the flip side to it, that having that constraint also gives me a freedom to go to explore deeper with my tools. And I'm speaking about this with only respect to my tools, but being in a situation where you're out of your comfort zone, where you are covering a subject that was not your first choice of what you would in uh if you had a plethora of options what you would choose to draw it does does that also bring you some kind of unexpected joy or pleasure or sense of achievement when you when you do something that wouldn't have been your choice
0: yeah absolutely uh it's I, not always my choice but i think the um the comfort zone thing for me actually does i feel very much in my comfort zone in those places when there's half an hour or 20 minutes or someone's sitting for you but they're in a rush or um you can't stay in a place too long uh because it might may or mo- may or not be, may or may not be dangerous you don't you don't know but you know the advice is to keep moving uh so yes The restraint, the constraints of a dip pen and a piece of paper, and a and a board, uh, I think, are brilliant because they encourage me to be brave and bold and to get on with it and not to worry too much about the outcome. And I think that's often often the biggest constraint when you start. You want to always make the best looking picture every single time, and so to know that it doesn't to know that it doesn't matter if you spill ink on the page and then carry on um, is a valuable lesson uh, and then the constraints of the other parts of the, of the other things are again I think they're tools to to use to your advantage so often in the, the Middle East it's not that it's too dangerous uh, it's just that it's incredibly hot and I'm uh, very blonde and so I have even less time than the next person but um <laughs> And you're probably sweating onto your page, uh, or if you've got sun cream on your arm, then that's going to stain your paper. So these things are uh, to be embraced, if nothing else. Um, and just, I guess, it makes them it makes them real. <laughs> Can you think
1: of an experience like this, which maybe it began under conditions that were? not feeling good to you. You were uncomfortable or you were drawing something that you didn't want to draw, but at the end of it, you reach a a drawing that was therefore unexpected, unplanned, but turned out to be a lot better than you thought it would be. Some, some kind of discovery.
0: Uh, Frantically looking around my studio to see if there's any clues. (laughs) Um, I've always found that the feeling of discomfort, whether it's in the sun or in uh, because people are intimidating has, has has usually turned out well i'm usually not expecting a drawing and, and i get one um so let me try and think of a good example i mean the one that i often talk about is is drawing the 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 young man who'd lost his leg in the hospital the Bab al hawa syrian turkish border crossing uh in 2013 february 2013 and I was there as a journalist, and as far as everyone in the hospital was concerned, I was a journalist, and so that I should be shown exactly what's happened to the, to the people of Syria. And I was pushed in the door of a children's ward. It had three beds in it, three kids, all with their parents beside them. And the middle bed was um was this little lad, and uh his father was sitting at the end of the bed dressed in black. Um so, um you know his life torn apart uh literally and emotionally and it was sort of my it was then on me it was obviously nothing to do with me except i thought i obviously thought i can either walk out of here or i can stand and draw it and so i felt rather sort of i don't know what i felt but i hit sort of hid behind my drawing board in the corner like you might hide behind a camera and put my head down and drew as much as possible and and the I don't know if you can see see the drawing in the book but it's sort of um I'd drawn something that I thought was very much representative of that moment a little boy who'd lost his leg and I was nervous to carry on with it so I left the rest of it blank I didn't want to mess it muck it up and I was um I think I just, yeah, I mean, I suppose you do feel like you shouldn't be there watching. Um, you are an imposter for that moment. But but equally, there was a sort of man who slightly came to my rescue and he was sitting in the corner and, and uh, his son was in the next door room and he'd been, he'd been shot or blown up or one of the two. And he was saying, luckily he spoke English, and he was saying, no, you should carry on. This is what we want the world to see. That's a very grand statement to think that at that time the world would see it or that anyone would react, but I suppose that was was enough encouragement for me to carry on. And yeah, it's something I'll I'll never will never forget.
1: That that drawing has actually stuck in my mind as well, and that's both a testament to how well you how well you conveyed that scene, and also the power of illustration in itself you mentioned that you left the drawing incomplete. It's not a completed image, Mm. but it's almost more powerful that way because I remember that that scene is just seared in my mind as well, along with the words that you attach to it. The father uh, holding on to the leg, uh, the remaining leg of his son, and he's there with his head bowed, dressed in black, and his hand on his son's right leg, right foot. And the drawing is incomplete, as you say, but the part that you were able to capture... Is the crux of that image? It conveys the emotion of that moment. It conveys the just the awful tragedy of that of that whole situation, and you confront there also this the father himself because he he confronts you. Well, it's fairer to say he and it's a moment of like it it sounds as a reader as a moment of almost like reckoning, and I want to probe it if that's okay about did you feel a moment of futility in that moment about what what is the point of illustration what is the point of you know reporting something like this and can you do something about it when you just when you're just there
0: uh, well i think um what do i think i think those moments are, are should be and are constant in any journalist's mind and artist and a photographer uh and poets and the like is there a point to any of it um but uh there was a real i was i am always reassured that i think that illustration is first of all a very uh gentle and fair way of recording these moments i think one of its great criticisms was probably that it's always biased in favor of the person in front of you it's very difficult for it not to be you are by very fact of following through telling their story um and if you're good at it then you're you, you shouldn't be too involved uh so i don't know i mean i think it's if everybody agrees that that it should that that there should we should understand what is going on then Then it is. Then it's. Then you have to be sensitive to people. But but it also happens that I happen to be uh, able to draw something and tell other people that wouldn't otherwise know. So that I think is the value. And if that's one person or ten people or a thousand, then I think that is probably uh, my justification for it. At, the, at those moments and to come all that way to go all that way and not to not do it to stand and and think that it that it isn't that it that you couldn't do it or that it wasn't it wasn't good enough, that the story wasn't good enough in a vertical to be told I think that would be worse so I often find myself stopping and drawing things that probably no one else will ever see but I thought they were interesting at the time
1: Yeah. There there are two things here that are so interesting to me. Firstly, I feel like the idea of feeling that conflict is such a human essential thing. If you don't feel that moment of conflict, there's so much else that you don't feel. And I feel like if you want to make good art, like, and I'm not talking about technically good art. I'm just saying something that expresses something. You have to open up those kind of those barriers to allow yourself to feel things. And the second thing about what you just said that really struck me so interesting was that every drawing is kind of biased towards its subject. And that's such a nice thought because no matter who you depict in a sense, you're trying to find something of value in that depiction. And in that sense, it's biased to them. And in that sense, it's incumbent on the artist to think in those terms to f- to think about the person and to find humanity in them to find some something of deep value in that moment that you see them and it's such a it feels like such an essential thing for an artist to to feel things and even even if it is to feel that existential crisis of why am i an artist over here what good am i doing At this point, we took a short break while George attended to an important phone call. While we wait for him to return, let's examine what he said about illustrations being biased towards the subject. I'm thinking of the media coverage we see of wars and conflicts, the money that goes into supporting news channels and the interests that are protected as a result. George talked also about the importance of individual stories in a time when we are trained to zoom out and consider the big picture. Illustrations are biased towards the subject. And we need that. We need someone to speak for the powerless individual. The young shepherd in Tajikistan waiting for his father to return from Russia. An economic nomad in Kenya drifting in search of gainful employment a young Yazidi girl chasing rabbits in a makeshift camp on top of a hill, or her mother who ran out of their home minutes before it was bombed, with nothing but what she could grab with her two hands. In the second half of this episode, I chat with George about some of these specific instances. We speak about finding subjects of art in such environment, and how his work reveals people's stubborn will to continue living, to make a home, to improve their lives, as well as the lives of their communities. Some of his subjects regard him in different ways. As an object of curiosity, as a potential saviour, on some occasions even as an opportunist profiting of their miseries. In some ways the world he paints is so radically different from anything I, or maybe you, have seen, but in some other ways it is also exactly the same. Children play whether in a park or in rubble. Elders sit around and wax nostalgic about past days. Young people look for urgent solutions to their life circumstances, taking radical steps to make a better life for themselves. Once again, I highly recommend you buy his book using the links in the episode description. And while you're there, consider supporting this show by clicking the link to buy me a coffee. It's literally that easy to help make this show happen. I loved speaking with George, and I feel that artists like him are the reason I started this podcast in the first place. By buying me a cup of coffee, you endorse my work, and you help me to continue this way as an independent podcaster, finding artists that pique my curiosity and sharing their stories with you in the way that I prefer. I see that George is taking a while, so here's another reason to participate in this kind of independent support. I think of this show as a deal between you and me. Just me creating this, and just you listening to it. It's an equation I'm comfortable with, because it lets me focus on my job, which is to make a great show for you. And if you're still listening to me talk, I think you agree that we have a good thing here. So when you buy me a coffee, take it also as an opportunity to start a conversation. Tell me what you like, who you wish I'd speak to next, and what I can do to make this show even better. Conversations over coffee are nice, even when they're virtual. This month, I'm offering a bonus commentary on my Buy Me a Coffee page, covering some of the more interesting tangents that we've taken from this conversation. It includes a profile of an artist who inspired George's creative journey, a graphic novelist whose work tuned me into the ravages of war, and a brief history of war illustration as it began close to 150 years ago. If you like this conversation, I think you will enjoy this bonus commentary as well. Now it seems George is back from his important phone call and we can resume our conversation. Let's get back into it. I'm thinking about the different ways that you react on the field. And, you know, uh, I want to connect it to something quite tame in comparison because you're in a conflict zone, but I'm talking about something domestic, something just like going out in a city that you don't know, which is what I do. Go out in a city I don't know and then sit down and sketch. And there are already all these hesitations in my mind and all these things that that worry me about, am I doing the right thing? Am I... Am I intruding on someone's privacy? Is it okay for me to do this over here? But you're doing this in a in a completely other kind of world. You're doing this in a conflict zone or you're doing it near, uh, near, near refugee camps. So uh, I want to maybe take you back to, and I want you to take me back to the first time that you were, you found yourself in such a place. What was that place? Uh, how old were you perhaps, if that's relevant? And, what were some of the questions that were going through your mind as you as you you know you began to sketch?
0: Um, I think. I mean, I don't think those. I don't think those feelings ever ever really leave. And but I but I also think from what, what we were talking about before that, that actually they're necessary. They're necessary to have them in order to to, in order to, to feel, to react to what's in front of you. And I can only speak for myself, but I make better drawings. When I, when I, when I'm reacting to something, usually to something that someone said, uh, but sometimes to, you know, feeling or something that's learned, but so where did I I think there was one. There was a there was a particular time in. Uh, I was in New York on a drawing trip, a university drawing trip, and I suppose I was trying to get away from this idea of of just of drawing Times Square or you know the the typical things we imagine of of New York. Uh, what I'd learned from from university and what I'd learned from looking at people like Ronald Searle and all those great uh, illustrators was that you're trying to react to something that perhaps hasn't been put on a piece of paper before. How do you make an image that hasn't, was different from the last one? And so I was doing what I normally do, which is wander around and around. And I found myself on the street, West 21st Street, I think it is. And um, outside uh, Hook and Ladder 24. Now there are two interesting things on the street. One was that there was a bread queue, a soup line from the church there and someone i re- i don't know why i remember this but someone was explaining how that this was the litmus test of the american economy how long this line was and on the other side of the street there was the um the fire station and they i was standing outside hoping to draw my way in through the door which every now and again opened and people would come out and they would go on their to an emergency and then it was shut but they were uh, they were also the sort of the heroes of three years earlier in 9-11 and so lots of people were walking down the street and talking to them and there was this sort of interaction and this great sort of in awe of these of this red building and um i think i drew there for a bit on the first day and the second day i i plucked up the courage to to ring on the doorbell and because uh, it was shut when i got there and i drew through the front and this uh, enormous american fireman or that's how i remember him said you, you you can draw but you can't come don't come across this line and so i drew for the day and then in the evening uh when it was you know obviously time to go i said right well thank you very much this is the drawing i've done and they were like oh no no god no we've got a um we've made some food upstairs there's a place for you laid and um you know, follow us. So we went back into the back of the kitchen, and one of them had cooked this enormous uh, meal, and I sat with them and talked about 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 their lives. And that was the drawings aren't the best drawings in the world, but that was the point of the of that moment. Uh, and then I went back a few days later, and uh, Jimmy, one of the old fire, one of the the, the lads, introduced me to the six portraits of interestingly portraits not photographs of the uh young men that had died in 9-11 and he explained how there was so many firemen had had uh, joined up they'd all been in the service for three years because because that was um because they had seen it as such a such a heroic act and that they wanted to in a way pay their respects by joining the fire brigade and um and i think we will see that happening now this time around in our health service i think certainly in england nursing is now 40% oversubscribed since um, covid so there is that human reaction that we that may or may not come across in the drawings but it comes across in the way that i think about them and uh so yes nice to remember that backwards again
1: <laughs> this kind of human interaction is it something that as as an artist who's trying to observe is it something that you're? Well, I I can I can see how much value it adds. It gives so much context to your work. It can, if you're if you're making different drawings over different days, I can see how it would give context and add value to the next drawing you make. If you had a, an intense human interaction the previous day, it, it'll inform you in so many ways. But as an artist who's observing an environment, are you also hesitant about this kind of human interaction? Uh, somehow your presence affecting things is that is that something that occurs to you it does
0: occur to me yeah uh it does occur to me i was drawing a man i don't think he made it into the book uh there are some um scenes that only happen because you're there remember that or change dramatically because you're there Uh, usually drawing usually drawing kids they come and they stop what they're doing and they come and look which is not what you want to happen so you have to be incredibly patient but there was a there was a scene in a refugee camp in a place called Hamal Alil in uh 20 kilometers south of Mosul and we as I was with a friend of mine an another journalist and we were invited into this tent as a, as a last ditch desperate sort of moment of desperation um to help this lady and her husband who was lying in the back of the tent um who'd had a had a he'd either had a, ho- a stroke or a heart attack and um they were hoping that we could help uh <laughs> um and that is that's I mean what do you what can you what can you do I mean theres uh it's I don't know your your the influence I don't know you often think that you would be able to, to help uh and also that you obviously can't and then and um so the you are then as much as part of the I mean I wasn't because I was luckily on the periphery but the one of the ways of helping was of course to take to take details and tell stories and refer them to to people who might be able to help but uh to answer your question you are the whole scene then changes because there are a, a journalist and there's someone with a camera there to The tent is suddenly full of family people feeling very emotional they want to tell their story um, they probably don't want to share it with you because it's incredibly personal but on the basis that they've got no other choice they they do so you're slightly conflicted in taking the testimony because they are probably it's the last thing they want to do talk to you but if there's a small chance that it will help then they will uh and so yes you're right that happens that has happened a lot uh and um yeah sometimes it's more I don't know what the word is really. I mean, I think that I always think that illustration is a sort of gentle, unthreatening, open way of describing those moments. It would be, I would find it harder to do it with a camera, but some people, some people are are brilliant, brilliant at doing it gently with a camera.
1: I I feel like also the way people react to an illustrator is very, very different from the way people would react to a photo photographer. And of course, this has nothing to do with the skill of the photographer themselves. But seeing a photographer uh, who is perhaps looking at you, uh, might treat you as a subject, it, uh, it occurs to me that there is a feeling of impersonality or hostility that one reserves for a photograph. A, a camera is invasive in a way that a drawing is not invasive. And I'm thinking of, uh, so a specific instance of when you were inside, uh, you visited a jail in Syria, and you were drawing some of the peop- some of the prisoners, and there was this intimidating looking person who locked eyes with you and did not look away. Yes. <laughs> can, can you tell me about that? Because that, that experience is so interesting about how he regarded you and how you thought he regarded you.
0: Yeah, obviously, at my foreign misconception of what was going on, uh, coming to the forefront. But uh, yeah, the story is uh, that we—I had spent a well, I'd spent a day with this nice bloke driving me around on the back of a motorbike, showing me the whole of this little town called Azaz. And every time we went to a new building, he wanted to show me the rocket that had gone through the wall. And you know, after a while uh that becomes less interesting because it's it's happened and there's not any human interaction and so as a sort of last ditch attempt um to fill the day we just drove to see his mates in the prison and um because he was probably bored and wanted to chat to them and not to me because i didn't speak arabic uh so we went to the prison where his soldier friends were guarding this one of the, the the jails. And, um, I asked if I could draw and I started drawing the, there were two blokes, but but two drawings, but the second one. Um, so I was sitting looking through the bars, which was quite weird anyway, because there's probably a consent issue there. So I was, I was, (laughs) I was uh, conscious of that. Uh, and, um, I'm drawing and there's this bloke just lying on the floor, looking up at me, never moved a muscle, hardly blinked. And I thought, Thank God the, the the bars are there, uh, and then uh, of course total misunderstanding of, of of the situation. But he then very sweetly, after about fifteen minutes, said in Arabic to the person behind me, "You know, is it okay if I move? Because I've been sitting here fifteen minutes, and I know you are drawing. So, can I go and sit back at the back now?" And so that is, you know, it's 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 a nice representation of of how you could be allowed into a place. Uh, with through drawing may not through any great uh, any sort of clever negotiation on my part other than it the drawing is probably probably broke up the monotony of the day of waiting in a cell or waiting outside the cell it was unthreatening probably didn't take it very seriously they didn't think they were going to be recognizable and they probably aren't so i was allowed in um <laughs> And it happens every now and again. The Russian soldiers in Armenia wouldn't be photographed, but if we crept very closely to them and sort of showed them the drawings and then uh, mostly if I promised to send them the pictures, promised to send their wives pictures in Moscow, then I was allowed to draw. And that was the case with Vlad, who was who was guarding the Dadivank Monastery, and Edouard, who was stopped the convoy and posed in front of his in front of his very smart peacekeeping truck. So there's a sort of, you know, uh, uh, does anybody take them seriously? I don't know, but it's nice to think that it works. I, I, I would like to think they take
1: you very seriously because something like asking for a drawing to be sent home is something I can never imagine somebody asking for from a photographer. To show somebody a photograph you took of them Often, especially if they're in military gear, I can imagine they would not see the that image of themselves in a positive light.
0: There is a sort of nobility in it, isn't there, of having your picture recorded? But I mean, to be fair to the the photographers that I know, um, I mean, they would say quite rightly, in order to take the picture that I want, I need to gain your trust better than you do, because my representation is you know it's valid in a court of, in a court of law and if people see it they can recognize you so there is i think it works both ways and and the two don't necessarily compete but um you're right, there there is you're right there is a different people take it different things different things seriously don't they some cultures take uh take different things very seriously and that's quite that's always interesting I think
1: yeah yeah i'm i'm thinking of this time when i was in a in a coffee shop in amsterdam and i was drawing some people across from me who were smoking shisha they were also smoking weed and uh, in this instance which rarely ever happens this person saw me drawing them and he uh, called out across the the room are you police mm-hmm. <laughs> and i said no i'm not police i'm an artist and then he wanted to see the drawing and i as, as I recall, I don't know if he got friendlier after it, but it was definitely disarming to think that you're not you're not you're not there to uh, like like you mentioned, like one of them is admissible in a court of law and then that takes away an element which has not got to do with the photographer or the photographer's intent. It's simply the tool that they have at their disposal and how that other person perceives that tool. Do they perceive it as a threatening invasive tool that can be used against them? Or do they perceive an artist and an artist's tools as something that can only be good or harmless?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I agree. I think you've said it very well. (laughs) I agree with you.
1: (laughs) I'm also thinking of how you've drawn, uh, like you mentioned about uh, covering refugees in the Balkan areas. And you talk about a uh, a refugee girl who looked at you out of a queue and she started smiling Mm. and... You talk about, you talk, uh, you refer to a laborer in Kenya, and this is a story of economic migration mm. and people who's, who've moved to another life and another way of living completely and how they approach you with their stories. And it, it just strikes me that even in these extreme situations, like being a refugee in a foreign country where you don't speak the language, where the weather is oppressive where nobody, all the authority structures around you are not friendly to you. They don't want you there. Even in that, the fact that somebody can find a way to smile, the fact that somebody can find a way to to just be in a community of some kind, like bonded together just by virtue of being refugees. It's this incredible human ability to kind of normalize even the most extreme surroundings, is that something you've also? Is that an emotion you felt when you when you uh, look at the, the way people are living their lives in these places? Somebody in Syria, or I think it was Iraq, maybe going back to their bombed out home and preferring to live there instead of a refugee camp.
0: Mm. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, very much so. But th- I think those the, those are the stories of this book, uh, and uh, they are they are. The, they are more common than we imagine. In fact, and it, it hasn't. I haven't met a thousand people, and, and only shown you 10. I've met probably twenty, and the twelve of them are, are in the book, and twenty of the you know the other te- the other rate I've could have been. They though that sort of common. It's such a common, such a common thing, and uh, all yeah. so a little girl in the queue, obviously. Um, you know, sort of heartbreaking and heartwarming in the same breath, uh, and then that this the lad who I met in uh, in um, in the sort of infamous Kibera slums in uh, in um, in Nairobi. Those are the realities of of migration, and I think in one of the reasons that for for putting it all down in a in a book is that uh well i did an exhibition about migration and one of the driving forces was that it whether it's economic or um or as a refugee migrant or refugee they there isn't in the uk there isn't often we're fairly safe in the knowledge that we can comfortably and safely spend our life in, in, our, in our own country we may travel for other reasons it's usually a luxury um, but what i saw doing these drawings was that it was such common place to move uh, that most people in their lives would expect to at some point either their parents had and they had now and it was part of the story but they were now settled somewhere or they were expecting to move for work or they were expecting to move for both or they were waiting for something terrible to happen or in the case in syria they'd moved five times around their country and were trying not to leave syria because they wanted to stay but the final straw was they had to get across the border into lebanon at night um, uh, so i guess the point of the book is not really to sensationalize any of that it's just to say that uh, that it is it, it is such an ordinary thing for many people in the world and the way the more we can understand that the less intimidating it's going to be because with the way the world is now and climate change and population increase and finite resource it's only going to happen more so um you know easy to say and the book doesn't offer any solutions but being aware of individuals who have moved can only be a good thing and to understand the reasons a little bit um uh is is it must must be worth something and, and i suppose i thought about the i think about the kind of classrooms in the in the south london in south london where i live they are now wonderfully um have got influences from all over the world and so uh i thought about those stories many of them many of them second third generation will have experience in their families of of moving but probably don't talk about it and so i just i think in very if if it's a very basic cue for that and that's why this book ended up being a aimed at a sort of beautiful book but aimed at eight to 18 year olds then that that would that would be great i've also got a um i've got a 12 year old brother who, who lives uh far far away from all of these things as he possibly could in, uh, in the Cotswolds in England. And so it would be, you know, to think that he might read it and ask himself questions about that is a, is a nice thought.
1: Yeah. And another aspect of these stories that moves me is to see that, like you mentioned how, you know, in developed countries we live lives of such comfort that we don't, think about being displaced in by by such sudden events that tomorrow i could have to leave my possessions and go somewhere so what also comes across comes through these stories is the incredible strength of these people to to be able to smile to be able to have a positive reaction to a small little thing when you had to leave behind so much and i'm thinking of like the migrants in tajikistan even who who travel to Russia by these what can't be comfortable trains mm. to to work there. And people from Pakistan and Iraq and Afghanistan going to, going to live in Europe just to work and to send the majority of their savings back to their families. People living like such a large part of their lives away from their families in order to keep providing for their families.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is truly brilliant. I, I mean, I think there's always a risk to... Of sort of over glorifying it because they're you know there's such a significant influence on on my life in the moments that I met them but they probably don't you know it wasn't it wasn't significant for them so uh I think I think what I the the, what I want to get across in this book is that this is ordinary in that we don't have to necessarily worship it we don't have to necessarily think that these are the kindest people on the face of the earth i believe that they're just there's probably what we would all do in that situation um some better than others but but it but it is to acknowledge it and to say that it that it can be an extraordinary making and breaking of, of people uh and so that i think is a really fine line that i couldn't do without drawing i think probably not even doing it very well in words now but but uh yeah i just feel there's no it's not no one i've ever met is asking for sympathy or to do it different necessarily to do it differently they are saying that this is what they are doing for, for because they have to and what you know what choice do they have but uh and so there is a bravery in it but i don't know whether they would describe it as bravery i think they would be embarrassed to be discreet if you said to them they were being brave i think they would just i think it would i think they they wouldn't accept that
1: yeah that that's a good point bravery is just how again from the comfort of our lives if we look at it then it's easy to ascribe these words to it because it 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 kind of rests on the on the idea that they should react with, with desperate with just you know just falling apart, and that is an underestimation.
0: We like it because we hope that we would react in the same way. Yeah, uh, and whether we would or not is we we'll, we will probably never know. <laughs> yeah,
1: I mean you can only have that answer when you face those circumstances and. Everything before that is just, it's some kind of romantic notion of what you would do and how you would do it.
0: I was just going to say that is, I get lost in those conversations with myself. And so really the way through that, the answer for me was to try and tell the stories of 12 people I met in as far as humanly possible in their words, because um, no, one, no one else is a good enough, really.
1: Yeah. So this, uh, uh, putting these 12 stories together, was it something that uh, so, uh, w- were you there for this subject? Were you there for other reasons? And then w- did you just, uh, did you compile these stories out of the work you had done or was migration always in the back of your mind as something that you want to speak about one day?
0: It it happened that a bit like I described earlier, really. they, they I went to different places places like iraq and uh and uh syria and east africa and and that the that it just so happened that the people that i met probably because i was moving around as well were also moving and so the first half of the book was was um was chance really uh, that that the stories and the people i met were were on the move and And in that moment when they were moving that it seemed like a good time to talk. And so they, they talked and I drew and then, uh, and as that built, that theme built, I became more interested in it. And, uh, I guess I sought out, uh, the environments within which that happened. So, um, it it was a bit of both really, I think that's how it has to work. I think you have to pick a theme eventually and, and do it for long enough and see what happens
1: yeah uh, as a so as a person who's uh, working for uh, someone how do you then find yourself in these locations like do, do you pitch your ideas to someone above you and suggest that you be sent here to do something or is it more self driven
0: um it's more self driven i think it's very difficult as a reportage illustrator to be commissioned to do exactly what you want to do um certainly no sort of staff journalist jobs at newspapers or if there are um i don't know about them <laughs> i haven't got i haven't been off of one uh, but so it's a bit of a balance i think i love i would love to just to draw exactly what i wanted at, at, at all times but uh because i think th- it's a better reaction my I feel I feel more confident doing that but um yeah so by and large it's self-driven so about it but I but I think from a practical point of view you have to try and get people on on board before you go so it may be a self-driven idea but I will also approach people and say I'm going to go to this part of the world this is an interesting story what do you think would you publish it if and sometimes they say yes, sometimes they say no. I usually go anyway, um, and um, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, I did a trip to Yemen that uh, no one's ever seen. The journalist I was with did, did wrote wrote about it quite a lot, and that those were published, but the drawings were never never found their way into the into the world. Um, it's a great it's a great relief when it. When they get printed because um because you're then in a way doing what you promised the person that you would who sat down and gave you their time, you are telling their story to more than just yourself, so there is there yeah, there is real relief when that happens,
1: yeah uh, in the opening pages and then in the ending pages of your book, you have you know it seems when i first opened the book it felt like as if it was a random set of objects that you drew and then it's repeated at the end of the book a seemingly random set of objects they don't correlate to uh, to anything to any one theme they don't necessarily they're not all useful they're not all you know multipurpose some of them are just absolutely useless like there's a there's a remote control there's an, a TV remote, uh, there's an old photograph, there's a teddy bear, there are scissors, I think there's a nail clipper as well. And uh, tell me about these objects. Uh, describe what they are, and uh, I'd just like to hear about it.
0: The are objects uh, that I collected. Well, I collected them on a page, piece of paper. Uh, so, uh, uh, it was a trip to um, Lebanon, commissioned by doctors of the world. So in this, in this case, commissioned rather than just on my own. And um, they were the belongings of Syrian refugees who had uh, made their escape from Syria across into Lebanon, which we now know there are in excess of a, mil- a million, probably closer to two million. And I just was thinking about how better to tell us, you know, how many times can you draw families uh, in the UNHCR tents white tents with gray blankets round and round and round um they're not allowed to make permanent homes in in lebanon so that is a very common scene and 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 every photographer has taken those images already so this was just a way of telling their stories and the the things that you mentioned the remote control and the, the teddy bears were collected um Collected at that kind of the moments they were the belongings that they had in their pockets or in the front of their cars or that they packed in a rush because um, the bombs were falling or the warnings had gone out or they packed them because they thought they were going home in a week's time and didn't think that they'd need anything else. Um, the case of the torch and the remote control was one family in the Bekar Valley and they had left overnight and the mum, as she'd left, had grabbed the drawer. That she knew the torch was in. We've all got one of those drawers at home, and uh, she used a torch. Got her kids, her two kids, to who both brought teddy bear. Got them to Lebanon, and when she arrived in this tent two days later, um, she'd also found that she had the remote control, uh, an old Nokia phone battery, which seemed valuable but useless, uh, and a broken lighter, and I can't remember what else was in there. But they are sort of the useless objects. Um, that were that was all that was left of their of their home, as it were, and all their the memories. So they kept them because they were because probably because they might be useful. But um, they were uh, they were only they were only is kind of my way into trying to understand their story, and that that was why I drew them.
1: Yeah, it they I mean they they don't have a practical purpose anymore in their lives. And of course, they didn't know that before, but now they might be the 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 symbols of what they left behind and they, they gain this, this value not only to them, but also when you represent them, it like uh, we were talking about how, you know, how when we look at these stories, it's the common knowledge is that you should zoom out and you should be dispassionate and you should look at the larger picture, as people say in order to understand them better. But there is this implicit dehumanization when you do that, when you look at the larger picture and you think of bigger forces at play and you don't look at individual lives that are affected in these things. And it it's, it occurs to me that by representing these objects, it's another way to, to, I don't know if this is a word, but to rehumanize these people, to make them similar to us in some ways. these I, I read the story about how she grabbed the remote control and it was some kind of a box or was it a drawer where all of us keep things. All the things that we don't know where they would go, we have one place in our home where we just stash them for later. And I can imagine that my drawer uh, pulled out like that and then carried with me would also include these items which have no use. And would i would i also just hold on to them because simply because that's all that's left that's all that that says this is where i was from this is where i was and this is what life was like at a certain time
0: yeah uh well that's that yeah that's exactly what happened and i think well yeah i mean we talked about it a bit right? but that, that's what we're up against all the time especially with with the figures in covid there are such enormous statistics and easy to feel helpless and easy not to understand so on the one hand you have a headline that says "100,000 deaths which is the case in the uk uh and then uh the other end is to pick out three stories of of people who've done something extraordinary at a difficult time and and i think we need both i think you need more of the second one but um and that is a balance i guess that's a sort of endless struggle
1: uh i i i don't know if i have more questions i just have these different uh impressions of the things that you drew and uh, i guess all i want is for you to keep telling me more about those things because i i really would have loved it if your book was even bigger like just it's very nice uh, it it <laughs> It, I feel like that maybe this is a good opportunity to, and I hope people will give you the incentive to make a volume too, or just more details of those things because, like I remember this image of, and you have you have a patch of green in the Yazidi camp where they've made a small garden, and it's surrounded by mayhem. It's surrounded by these uh, poorly constructed camps and uh, living life in this place in uh, completely displaced from your from your world. But even then, they're able to make a home.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, we can't tell all the stories in shanties, and so no one will ever buy the book. But yes, <laughs> that is, uh, yeah, again, I guess that's what you're looking for, isn't it? Whether you're drawing on the streets of New York, whether you're drawing on the uh, in a refugee camp in Kanke. But um, that, well, that place struck me, first of all, because they tried to make a lawn in a desert, and it was actually, it's a piece of astroturf. Uh, was it a piece of AstroTurf or what the, had they watered a patch? I have to look at the drawing again. I think they'd watered a patch actually, but but what drew me to that was, was um, the rabbits. They had about uh, like 10 white rabbits running around and around. And um, I thought, oh, how sweet. They're pets. And of course they're not pets. They are um, for the pot and were treated as such. Uh, and then there were some sunflowers and and the, and those gardens Uh, 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 there's a practical purpose but also a homely purpose and um in another situation where i was trying to draw and the kids came out and like dragged a chair out for me and then sat around and watched me drawing and i wanted them to be in the picture and they wanted to watch me draw and so it was a waiting game and um yeah i mean those are those are those are all those are those moments that have sort of been allowed, have been allowed through drawing.
1: And uh, this is something that I feel about every drawing that I make, and I'm, I'm sure you feel the same way. That that the the things you draw are of course on the page, but there are all these other things that you don't draw, and not, these other feelings that you feel at that time. They also they just stick with you like you never lose them when you spend that kind of time at a location. There are so many impressions which are not on the page.
0: Yeah. Well, it's why teachers get us to write things down, isn't it? So that you, (laughs) your brain is connected to the action. And that's, uh, that is very important, I think. Um,
1: So, so for you uh, as, as the illustrator going to these places, then coming back from them is, is there like a period that you need to spend just decompressing from these two you know starkly different worlds would you go from one point of work to another or would you come back home for a while and need to decompress like that
0: um when i think of decompress i always think of films like jarhead and i don't see it the same way i see it in some of my journalist friends i think you need to you Need to go and lie down for a bit. Uh, I, I'm it's not so much the deep, I think decompression is, slight, is slightly over egged word in my case. I think I often the irritation I have when I come back is not with anything that happens at home because I love coming home, it's more that I want to try and remember as much of where I was as possible and um for good and bad. And, and I suppose coming back and having to do the mundane things make it difficult to do that. And so, and so you inevitably end up comparing, but it's, it's not really a comparison because that's not a, not a thing to, to try and do. No, um, it's just, I usually still want to be where I was. Um, and so, um, coming home is always a mixed, a mixed feeling, isn't it? And then you're trying, trying to describe the benefit of this interview is years after. And so I've got my story straight. But when you come home from somewhere and, there, and someone says, what was it like? Then that's very difficult, I find. And I get annoyed with myself that I can't, that I haven't, haven't got the words usually to, to describe it. So I say look at the drawings and buy the book. <laughs> and which
1: which I recommend to everybody. It's such a it's such a beautiful book and everyone should should have it, not only for the art, but also for the stories. And so that everybody can hopefully remember even even one of these people that you've covered. And even if one of these stories takes hold of one person, I feel like it would change them. It would change how they feel about the rest of the world, quote unquote, how they feel about migrants, and how they feel about just the act of war and the costs associated with it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I, I guess the point of the book is not to separate, I hope that there's a story in the book that everyone can relate to. And it isn't just something that happens to, to people that, that live a long way away. I, I hope there's a relatable story in each, in, in each chapter.
1: Yeah, yeah. I have a final question uh, for you, which I really wanted to ask, especially since last week. It's about a scene of great devastation and destruction that you did not cover. And I'm a little shocked that you didn't cover it because it was so such a profound devastation. And that's the recently concluded test series between England and India. <laughs> and yeah, it was just, it was brutal. Uh, the way that the English team was destroyed on the field in front of millions of people watching on television
0: i know powerful stuff though it it,
1: it really was there were there were bats swinging in the air nowhere close to the ball and <laughs> wickets flying in all kinds of directions you I could know. see the the worn faces
0: i know um thank god the, the the tv crews are there uh i know it wasn't it wasn't the result that we were hoping for but um well, what can I say? Were we bl- are we blaming the pitch?
1: I, I believe that's the current British narrative. It's uh, it's not only that the pitch was bad; it's that the pitch was changed overnight whenever the other side had I think to bat.
0: You dusted the pitch or something.
1: Yeah, yeah, and the, it's actually more complicated than that. There's a uh, there's a technology to flip it over. So on right. the other side, you have a batsman-friendly pitch. Yeah. So whenever we, we bat, we ask people to look away, yeah. and then we flip the I pitch know, over. The
0: old rivalries, the home, the home team advantage. So we look <laughs> forward to having you here again, of course. Uh, maybe the maybe the shoe will be on the other foot. <laughs> so uh, I actually never been asked to draw cricket. It would be a very difficult game to draw. Actually, sports very difficult from a long way away yeah i
1: i feel like i feel like the motions are so instantaneous that if you're not working out of photographs i wonder what you would be able to capture as an illustrator it's 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 challenging for me like i draw really quickly so when i draw people sometimes i'm drawing people in 10 or 15 seconds so speed like i think that's fast but capturing a cricket stroke would be would be so difficult i feel like in football so much of it so much of the strategy and the play can be expressed by the position of the players on the on the pitch at that time that you can suggest the action as an illustrator. Yeah. But cricket would be harder.
0: Well only available to the people who understand anything about cricket. So the rest of the world would be, would definitely not be looking at our drawings. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's, that's true. That's true. All right. So thank you so much, George. This was, I learned so much. I like, I've, I'm always curious to, you know, I I speak to a lot of artists and something that I always probe and I want to get to is why do you make your art and what is the point of making a drawing or making art? So I hope that in listening to this episode, people will We'll see that you know illustration and observing the world and making an illustration of that. Even if it's not somewhere far away, even if it's your home, it has value and it can communicate something. It can be useful to say a story, and that's why I'm glad for this conversation.
0: Well, it's very nice to talk to you. I think, especially at the moment where we've all looked inwardly and uh, spent more time on our with ourselves, I think uh, I think I've certainly found that there's been a, a bigger part of of uh, my life sort of devoted to creating things and um, and that i that, that's that's uh, in a way a, a nice byproduct of this extraordinary um, virus that we've had in the world. Uh, so um, well it's been incredibly nice to talk to you. You've asked some very good and difficult questions. I hope i've <laughs> I hope I've done done the book and myself Justice.